Welcome to the Behold Do Good podcast. I'm your host, Todd Marchant, and this is a show for those who desire increased capacity, the capacity needed to live fully and to show up well for those you love. If your life is anything like ours, you often experience the reality that you don't have much to give when your own cup is empty. These struggles inspired my wife, Ashley, and I to embark on an ongoing journey of healing and wholeness. Our journey has not removed the challenges out of life, but it has given us practical tools to increase our capacity to deal with those challenges and to create the life we want. We created this podcast to share those tools so you can care for yourself and so we can together care for the world. Enjoy the show today. And if you're looking for additional support, head on over to beholdogood.com. Welcome back to the podcast and welcome back to, to Alex Korb. Uh, we just barely recorded a few days ago a conversation and it was just packed full of wisdom about neuroscience and the way our brains work. And by the end of it, we were we wrapped it up and Alex and I were talking afterwards. I just said, Alex, there's so much more, so much more insight and wisdom you have to share that we didn't even get to scratch the surface on. And so he graciously agreed to record a part two here uh, where we can dive into some of the additional details that that I have found personally helpful for myself and my family and, and that I'm excited for, for our audience, our community to learn from. So Alex, thanks again for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to... Great to talk more about some of the specifics about how people can actually apply this information. Um, I mean, because I, you know, obviously I got a PhD. I'm, I mean, not the obviously, I, but the fact that I got a PhD, I'm always interested in understanding like why all this works. And, uh, you know, a lot of other people are too, but sometimes I'm like, well, okay, we got to get into the, the nuts and bolts and the practicalities of how you put that information uh, into your life. Which is exactly why I was I was wanting to have this second conversation. And so if you haven't listened to the last podcast episode, it's up to you, but I would recommend go back. Uh, there is such a powerful foundation we gain purely through awareness and understanding. And as we understand what's going on in our brain, it is super enabling and, and hope giving. And so uh, that's what the last session really will help help provide you. Uh, and then here we'll transition into talking about some of the very uh, practical applications of that understanding. And in fact, I think you know one one way to introduce us jumping into these elements, Alex, is in, in the subtitle of your best-selling book, and maybe I should do a quick uh, rehash of your intro uh, sure. for those who are listening to this uh, before the other session. And so, Alex, uh, you are a neuroscientist out of UCLA and have a best-selling book, The Upward Spiral. You're a coach of Ultimate Frisbee there at UCLA. You're a family man and uh, just a wonderful human being and friend. We're super grateful. And I have thought often, I wish I could just record the offhand conversations you and I have, because <laughs> every time we do, there's just this wisdom and insight that I, I wish I could share. And so I'm glad we're recording this. Yeah. So uh, with that, the subtitle of your best-selling book is Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression One Small Change at a Time. And one of the things we talked about last time is that while the emphasis of the book did focus in on depression, if you are a human, if you have a brain, uh, if you want to reduce unnecessary stress or overwhelm or self-doubt, the principles, the concepts that you wrote about in that book and that you focus your work on, they apply to, to all of us. Mm -hmm. 
But I want to focus in on that last part of that subtitle, one small change at a time. In our last conversation, we went into greater detail about why it is these small shifts that really matter. But now we're going to talk about, well, what are the small shifts that help our brains to spiral up out of these depressed states or just these places of of overwhelm and stress and self-doubt that we want to spiral up from to have greater emotional and mental resilience. Mm-hmm. So one of the first that you you talk about is gratitude. So talk to us a little bit about what what impact does gratitude have on our brains? Yeah. Now, like gratitude is a is one of those interesting topics that I was really skeptical of for a long time because it just sounds like i don't know some just new age or some guru is telling you oh just like think about the things you're grateful for it has sort of tinges of like manifestation of like oh just think about what you're grateful for and we'll send energy waves out into the universe and reflect back and like it always kind of struck me as a little bs and uh, it wasn't until i was getting my PhD, where I started reading some of the neuroscience research about gratitude and found that, no, like it actually has measurable effects on the activity and chemistry of of key brain circuits that regulate our mood and stress and all of these things. And I was like, oh, I guess like there's something to this. Uh, and the funny thing is that a lot of times if you practice gratitude, you write a thank you letter, or you just think about the things that you appreciate or are grateful for, you can, you can feel better. Sometimes you can feel those changes, but if you're like a smart, successful, skeptical person, which I sort of would have put myself in that category, you kind of dismiss those feelings sometimes like, ah, but that's, yeah, that's not real (laughs) or whatever. And like learning about the neuroscience and the fact that these things do, do actually change your brain sort of helps you accept your own experience. Like, oh, oh, this is, I'm actually making myself happier. Like, oh, I'm actually changing my brain through this. So like learning the neuroscience helped me get out of my own way to actually practice this. And one of my favorite sort of simple examples of this is um, a study where they um, had people uh, remember or visualize key memories from their past. I guess all their memories are from your past, but key happy memories, things that they were uh, glad had happened that brought joy to them when they thought about it and just asked them to sit there and reflect on these memories and this is a form of gratitude because this is you know something that you're grateful for that happened in your life and the simple act of thinking about these happy memories increased production of serotonin which is a key neurotransmitter one of the primary neurotransmitter systems targeted by antidepressant medications and uh, it changed it in a, in a key part of the attention and emotion circuitry in the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. And uh, one of the things that I, I thought was great about this is like, well, you have lots of happy memories. You're just not thinking about them most of the time. And 
just by directing your attention to these things that are already there. Uh, you can change the activity and chemistry of these key circuits. In, and it's kind of similar to how on your computer, you can have tons of files, but most of them are buried deep and you'll never see them. Well, if you just go dig around and you know double click on them and oh, there's the happy video, like it can change your emotional state. Like the fact that it's there isn't going to necessarily automatically make you happy because you're not paying attention to it. And sometimes we're lucky because there are a lot of good things in our life that, oh, we, we just automatic, automatically get our attention drawn to and they make us happy. But when you're feeling stuck or down or overwhelmed or stressed, it's often because your brain isn't automatically seeing those things. And so it's sometimes helpful to, to have an intentional practice to go about it um, with intention so that you can start to create some of those changes, even though your brain isn't just going to do it automatically. Oh man, there's, there's several things that really stand out to me with what you just said, Alex. And, and then I have a follow-up question. You know, one of the things that stands out is, is this recognition that sometimes I think we take behaviors and easily start to label them as attributes. So mm -hmm. someone is a grateful person. Oh, that person mm -hmm. is just naturally a grateful person. And, and I am not yeah. know, something like that. But what you're emphasizing is how much this is just, it's a choice. It's a practice and not necessarily always easy, but that it is something we can always choose that we have control over. And that gives us a sense of agency in how we are feeling in our emotional well-being. Right. And, and so I think that's a really, really important point. And then I think a second thing that really stands out to me with what you just described is the power of what we focus our mind on. That that actually, it, it, it's amazing to me that what we choose to focus our attention on changes and shapes our brain circuitry in a way that influences that that trajectory of our our sense of well-being like that that also is is pretty amazing to realize the control we have there and so right. you you started to lead into this and this is where my follow up question comes from is that i know from from at least my personal experience when in a a dark time of life whether it's because we've gone through something really difficult we're in the midst of, of grief, uh, something very painful that that uh, is very uh, strong emotionally that commands our attention uh, very naturally. And so we, we we're focused on those things or whether it just be that for whatever reason, we've kind of downward spiraled into this dark and difficult place. It can be really hard to feel grateful and to see mm -hmm. the things to be grateful for. And, and so you mentioned it can be helpful in those moments where we're not automatically seeing those things. All we're seeing is the painful and the hard things to have an intentional practice that mm -hmm. helps to start to shift our focus to those other things. But uh, again, give us some advice here. When, when you're, if you're in that difficult place where the painful things so naturally command our attention, what are some, some of those intentional practices that are realistic that can help us to start to shift and create an upward spiral? Right. Well, one of the things is, um, uh, is a, is a misconception I think about gratitude 
that often gets in people's way from practicing it. And one is that they think their goal is to feel grateful. Like, and they're like, oh, okay, so I should remind myself, like, I'm glad I have my health and I'm glad I have running water. Um, and you can direct our attention to those things. But a lot of times they don't like create this like spark of joy because like, yeah, everyone has running water. Everyone has, you know, for the health, for the most part, I've always had it. We're like, it's very easy to take things for granted. And when we take things for granted, they, they, we don't automatically draw our attention to them. And even if we do, they don't create this strong feeling. And what, what happens then is a lot of time because our lives are generally good. They're filled with tons of good things. If we don't feel grateful, then we think, oh, I'm such an ungrateful person. I have all of these great things in my life. And, you know, Dr. Korb told me to pay, you know, to feel more grateful. And so I thought about, you know, I'm glad I have a refrigerator. I'm glad I ate food, but like that didn't make me feel better at all. I'm such an ungrateful jerk. And we use the fact that we don't feel grateful as just another reason to criticize ourselves. Uh, but the the key thing here is when I talk about practice in gratitude, like, yes, ultimately it might make you feel more grateful. And sometimes it does make you feel grateful in the moment. But the goal is not to change your feelings. It's to change your actions and your focus because you don't have direct control over your feelings in the way that you do over your actions and your focus. And uh, something that you said reminded me of this idea, like where you're like, oh, well, some people just, oh, they're just naturally grateful or whatever. And you don't really know how people feel. You just know how they're, what they act and what they say, like in the same way that, and, and it might be true that they might, some people naturally feel more grateful, but like, okay, is that not you? Well, you can still change your actions and your focus in the exact same way that some people are naturally athletic and they can just jump really high and run really far and they don't have to try. Okay. Is that you? Great. Is that not you? Well, then stop worrying about this other person who can just jump and dunk a basketball because they're tall and they can jump high. Like, well, you can't change fundamentally who you are, but you can, you know, start working out. You can start doing exercises and it's not going to make you naturally <laughs> athletic, but it can make you more athletic through, through work and these intentional practices. And so that's like a key thing to, to start out from is like, you know, let's, I like thinking of dunking a basketball is a good skill. Like, working on your jumping and working on your athleticism, it's not going to make you taller, but it will make you a better athlete. And maybe you can dunk, or maybe you'll figure out, Oh, I don't need to dunk because I can pass or whatever. Uh, but that's, I think when it comes to gratitude, yes, it will probably make you feel more grateful at some point. It'll start to shift your brain's automatic focus. It'll start to change what you're paying attention to. But it also change your mood in general, and it can improve your sleep, and it can have all of these different things, uh, different elements of the upward spiral. So, 
uh, again, start with this notion of, oh, your job is not to change how you feel. Your job is just to change your focus and your intentions. And even if you can't find something to be that grateful for, you can still remember to start looking in the first place. And if you are looking for things to be grateful for, well, your, your brain only has, or your mind only has so much capacity for attention. And so right now when you're stuck in grief or whatever, well, it's automatically going to be focusing on all of the reasons why your life is terrible and why it's never going to change. And all those things can still be true. And yet you're just going to look over here for a moment. You don't need to deny the fact that your life sucks. There's another key mind sh mind mindset shift is that people think they like the good things in life and the bad things in life have to do some sort of like cosmic battle. And they're like, well, I, I can't think about these good things. There's always bad things. It's like, okay, well, you can have work files on your computer and funny cat videos. But, you know, the ones that you click on, well, those are the ones that you're going to be paying attention to. And so, yeah, your life might be 90% terrible. That, okay. We don't have to deny the existence of that. You're just going to direct your attention. And that's, um, that's something you can do sort of at any moment just to, okay, I'm going to shift my attention. And there are uh, a couple simple ways to, I'll say three simple ways uh, to put that into practice. One is just think of happy memories, like particularly in, in grief or loss, it feels terrible because we're focused on the future without that person. And that's, it's true. It's painful. It's difficult. But the reason it feels painful and difficult is because of all these wonderful, happy memories. And like thinking of those happy memories isn't, um, isn't going to necessarily make you feel happy, but it will help prevent you from like just slipping into the downward spiral of grief. Cause it's not the, the grief that's the problem. It's then I feel these feelings and I don't like feeling these feelings. And so then I try and avoid feeling these feelings with alcohol or, you know, distraction or anger or whatever. And like, that's what creates the problem. And just thinking about the happy memories reminds me, like, Oh, right. Like I'm not feeling these things for no reason. Like I'm feeling them because it's a part of me. And these memories that I have, they will always be a part of me. <laughs> like, th like that's a, a positive way of thinking about it. Like, yeah, I'm not always going to be paying attention, but those memories are always there. Something that um, uh, the, the existentialist writer Camus described as his, uh, he said, in the depths of winter, I learned that within me lay an invincible summer that, yeah, you're going through terrible times right now. And you, you can always sort of retreat momentarily to these happy memories that you're glad are there. Um, another uh, simple way of doing it is with a gratitude journal, uh, which is just at the end of the day, I mean, you can do it at various times, but one of the one research study found that doing a gratitude journal as part of your sleep routine or getting ready for bed helps uh, reduce anxiety and improve the quality of your sleep. And all it really is, is just the end of the day, write down three to five 
tidbits of things that you're glad are a part of your life or that glad that traits that you have, you're glad you did that day and they can be big things or small things. They could be about people or traits that you have, or, you know, I'm glad I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like they, uh, and again, sometimes people are like, Oh, I, you know, I should come up with new things to be grateful for. You don't have to come up with new things. They can be boring and dumb. Like you can be glad every day that you have running water. Like it's not going to feel that, but it's going to keep you from focusing on all of the terrible things. Like you'd be like, yeah, I'm glad I have running water. Um, and just jot, jot that down. And it's perfectly fine to repeat yourself. Uh, and, uh, and then one of the, uh, the most powerful ways to, um, to practice gratitude is through, um, through expressing your gratitude to other people. Um, and one of this, one of the things that gets in the way of us doing that is that then we're like, Oh, you know, I didn't thank the person for that wonderful gift they got me. And, you know, I, I, I love it. It helps improve my life. But now if I say thank you now, they're going to be mad that I didn't say thank you later. Or like, or they did this little tiny thing. And if I say thank you, they're gonna be like, Oh, that's stupid. Why are you, th you know, or they're silly, they're going to dismiss it. And so we don't express our gratitude, because we're worried of, you know, all of how the other person's going to react, or how we're going to feel, or how we're going to look. And so one of the simplest workarounds for that is to just write it in a letter, write a detailed thank you letter to the person with the recognition, like you don't have to send this at all. So you never have to worry about how the other person's react, but you can still express your gratitude to that person. And maybe it was, you know, your English teacher from high school 30 years ago, or maybe it's just someone who let you in in traffic and you don't even know their name, but it was like, oh, so nice. I was rushing, whatever. Like just write a letter to the person saying, you know, what they did and how much it impacted you and how it changed your life and how much you appreciate it. And, you know, write in detail. And even some of these things, we feel stupid for how grateful we are. Like I have a friend from college who gave me this like children's book about, it wasn't the Dr. Seuss one about all the places it'll go. It was a different one. But I, like, I still think like in college, she gave me this dumb children's book as like a fun birthday present. And I was like, oh, that was like so thoughtful. And I still think about it. Uh, and sometimes we feel dumb, we feel stupid for how much these things influence us. And so you can just write it down. And there are studies that have shown that uh, if you spend 10 or 20 minutes, like just writing a detailed thank you letter, even if it's just like, you know, a few times, it can have impacts on your brain that last for months. Like this one study uh, had took people that were going through um, therapy for anxiety or depression or stress. And they had one group do three gratitude letters once a week for three weeks. And then three months later, they brought them in and scanned their brains while they did a series of, of tasks. And they found that the, the people who wrote the gratitude letters had significantly more, um, gratitude related activity when positive things happened to them. So they just the act of expressing that gratitude changed how their brain responded 
to positive events. Three Whereas months most later. of us, three months later, most of wow. us like, yeah, positive things happen in our brain. We just sort of ignore it, whatever. But like by taking action and expressing your gratitude, your brain is like, oh, I should, I should pay attention to that stuff. Like, oh, okay. I guess I'll start responding. And like the oftentimes like the, there is good stuff there in our lives. We're just not perceiving it. And by taking action, you can change the wiring of your brain. That is amazing. You know, I, I would expect, you know, when you, when you were saying, Hey, here, here's, here's something that's powerful. You know, it's, it's one of those things that I would think, Hey, yeah, I could see an impact of that for you know a week or two, but you need to keep at it in order to have some of that impact. And, and certainly, uh, I think repetition is a really important component of, of having the long-term impact we want, but hearing that that simple practice of three gratitude letters written out in detail that three months later, there is a measurable significant difference. Uh, that that's amazing. And so again, thank you for, I want to go back for a second and just thank you for clarifying what ultimately is the goal with mm-hmm. gratitude we're, we're going for. And I think about, about a year ago, uh, my family and I lost a, a family member. And so this last year has been very much a year where we've become intimately uh, aware of what grief feels like and to go through that mourning process and, and the healing that's required. And, and hearing you describe kind of that ability to, to bring our whole experience and embrace all of it that we can embrace the the pain and the difficulty and simultaneously cultivate gratitude and and have you know both pieces there it makes me think of another friend of of the academy here maria serios does some great work with the whole bean institute she uh, she talks about that kind of duality that truly to be whole is to allow for all of that, the joy mm-hmm. and the pain, the brokenness right. and and the fullness of of who right. we are and where we are in life. And so, uh, you know, what you were describing, you know, I think hits hits on that on that point. And uh, Sean Aker out of out of Harvard several years ago, I was at a conference where I heard him speak, and he talked about gratitude, and he talked about a gratitude journal. And so, I started at that time uh, that practice of keeping a journal before I go to bed at night. Mm-hmm. I've now got several volumes of these gratitude journals, but and part of it's just you know normal journal and kind of updating on on things of my family's life, but but with a special emphasis of what are specific experiences today that I could pull out, and sometimes it's a ma- it's a moment, it's a look, mm-hmm. it's a word, it's something like I have to search for that little piece that actually you know shines out above the rest, and just describe that in detail. And it's been very supportive, you know, certainly overall, you know, in my life and, and I, and I can see how it's contributed to, uh, you know, my overall well being. but, but especially in the dark times, you know, the times of grief. Yeah. And well, I was gonna say the one, one of the things about gratitude that sometimes also feels challenging is that when we're going through grief, sometimes our, like our emotions are so strong that our brain is like, ah, the best way to deal with them is just like, stop feeling things but that creates its like that's essentially what happens in depression but that creates its own whole host of other problems and one of the challenges with gratitude because it's not like oh perfect going to solve everything one of the challenges with gratitude is that it's like it it you start to feel more things and sometimes it makes you feel bad 
things because you like if you start thinking you know if you're kind of in this numb state uh, i i like to think of it as like you know if you're out in the cold and your fingers go numb well they're hurting and they're hurting and hurting until they go numb and they're like oh great they're not hurting anymore and then if you try and warm them up like oh my god as this hurts and so you might you might want to not warm them up because now you're causing yourself pain but it's helpful to realize like oh i'm not causing myself pain for no reason. Like if I could just live in this numb state forever, then okay, I'd be fine. But it realized like, oh, I'm not, I'm avoiding living, like I'm slowly dying. And so gratitude is sort of one way to sort of restart those feelings, but they will come with complexity that like, yes, they're these happy memories, but they're tinged with sadness about the loss. And there's nothing, um, there's nothing to do with that information except accept it. Like, yeah, like life loss is a part of life. Right. Like, and, and that's why like mindfulness practices can also be helpful, which are different from gratitude practices because gratitude is about intentionally directing your attention to positive things. Mindfulness is often about accepting what is <laughs> And sometimes we don't allow ourselves to feel grateful because we're not allowing ourselves to accept the, these difficult feelings that come with it. Yeah. In fact, if you look in my journal over the last year, I would say generally how it's looked is most of an entry is describing the reality of, of what I was feeling and experiencing that day. And, and I think, uh, in fact, there, there's, there's a number of research studies that also talk about that, you know, the value mm -hmm. of simply putting to words on, on page, uh, you know, our, our difficult experiences and our diff, our uncomfortable feelings. And so it would be a lot of that, but it was always with this end of trying to say, so here's all of, of what I'm experiencing right now, much of which is difficult and painful. And yeah. And, and it's keeping that it's not an or it's and right or but because sometimes people are like yes but i should feel grateful because of all this and it's like it doesn't matter what you should feel or not like you do feel terrible like that's true you do feel this and if you really think about it like well and you also feel glad that you have running water and you feel glad that you had the time with the person you did and you feel glad that you still have your family. Like, it's not that you have to manufacture those feelings. They're just not as, you know, they're overwhelmed by the grief. But it's, you're like, well, you don't just feel one thing. Like those those um, feelings of gratitude, they're like, they're, you know, nascent, they're there. You're just not paying attention to them. And so by paying attention to them, you allow yourself to experience them. And it doesn't, again, have to do battle with, the, the grief that's just like oh it's there and it's it's exactly like that um you know that old uh improv comedy uh strategy that's like yes and like stop stop trying to argue with each other that's not like let's okay yeah i feel that and i feel you know i feel angry and i feel sad and i feel grateful like stop trying to figure out what's the one thing i feel because your brain is complex and your life is complex so uh, appreciate some of that nuance right it's allowing allowing all of it and uh giving giving our attention you know to both well uh, i know we went a lot deeper uh, on on gratitude but i think 
hopefully what was gained there was a much broader perspective beyond just gratitude, some some broader perspective of how we just approach the challenges of our life and how I think some of those principles really cater to some of the other uh, core small shifts that we can make. And I want you to talk a little bit about one of the ones that you, you talk about in your book is decision-making, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting uh, area. Uh, talk to us what you mean by decision-making and how small shifts there, you know, affect our brain. Yeah. Well, a lot of times, you know, we overthink decisions and we get mad at ourselves for overthinking decisions. But again, this is where it sort of ties into gratitude there. You can acknowledge like, well, I'm only overthinking because, you know, I'm smart and I like to think through things. And that is a good trait that I have. So I can appreciate that I have uh, the the ability and the tendency to think through things because it means like, well, sometimes I can just think my way through things all and I find the answer. And sometimes it at least prevents me from just impulsively doing something stupid. So we can acknowledge like, oh, I'm glad I have this tool that I mostly use. It's just, ah, in this one specific instance, maybe I should find a different tool to use. And uh, the habit part of your brain is going to be like, no, 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 but th- this is where we feel comfortable. With our, like, And to realize that um, you can a- acknowledge your appreciation for some traits, but also acknowledge like, well, it's not being helpful in this very specific instance. Uh, and one of the reasons it's uh, trying to make decisions gets in our way is because we we are trying to make the perfect best decision and we either um, don't have, or, or like re- rather like either don't have enough information to know what the best decision is, or there isn't a best decision. <laughs> like which college should I go to? Well, this one is, you know, less expensive, but that one is, you know, has better weather, but this one has, you know, better sports teams and that one has better academics and this one has it but like how you you can't compare like it's comparing you know apples and oranges and pineapples and bananas like you at some point it comes down to you well like there's not a correct answer you like whatever and this is gets sort of existentialism like whatever you choose is the correct answer and that's not just from an existentialist point of view there's also a neuroscience basis for this, that we don't just choose what we like. We like what we choose. When you decide like, hey, I'm going to take action and value this, you enjoy it more than uh, than if it was just sort of handed to you. Um, and so by taking action, we, we change our experience of the world. Uh, but we get in the way of ourselves sometimes because we're trying to make the best decision and we think, oh, there is some best perfect decision out there. And if only I wasn't so stupid or if only, you know, I had more information or I thought about it more than I could figure it out instead of realizing, oh, there are many good decisions. <laughs> and the only bad decision, at least the only bad decision that I know obviously is bad is to just sit here and waste time and waste my life and not do anything. Uh, so um, by by trying to make a good 
decision instead of the best decision, it means like, oh, of any of these options, I could choose any of them. And that's better than the default of sitting here doing nothing. Whereas like, if we're like, no, I'm going to make the best decision. If I don't make the best decision, then I'm going to be so mad at myself. Then we're like, we get stuck because we're like, I don't, I don't know the best decision or there, there is no best decision. And instead of comparing, again, this sort of comes back to gratitude, like instead of making a choice and realizing like, oh, how much better off I am there, whereas before that makes me happy. Whereas if I make sort of feel forced into making something or someone else chooses for me, and I'm always comparing to my imaginary way that things could have been so much perfectly better, well, then I'm always going to be dissatisfied because it's not the the good things that happen to us that make us happy. It's sort of the difference between um, what happens to us and our expectations. And so if you're thinking there's some perfect scenario where I, it's the, the cheapest option and the easiest option and I'll feel super happy all the time, well, if you know what that is, yeah, take it. <laughs> But if you don't know what that is, then you just have to choose the options available. And when they're not perfect, stop comparing it to this imaginary perfect option that doesn't exist. And instead, compare it to what your life was like before. And be like, oh, well, my life is better than it was before. When you're speaking about this, Alex, it makes me think of two other bodies of research that are very complementary. One one is the science of hope. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to me. So uh, Rick Snyder and Shane Lopez, two of the, the pioneers in that, that field, they came up with this acronym to capture the research of what helps us to feel hope in the future. Uh, GAP is the acronym, stands for Goals, Agency, and Pathways. So mm -hmm. in essence, it's we see a a a future reality that is better than our current. We have meaningful goals. We believe that we can make that future a reality. We feel we have agency. But the third is, is, is that we see multiple pathways to get there. And that's part of what you're describing is, is this recognition of, you know, there isn't just one right way most of the time. Right. And that there's multiple pathways to get to where we want to go. And so there's value in just making a decision and moving forward of taking action. And that, that is what made me think of the other body of research around confidence. Uh, Joan Rosenberg, who is one of the instructors in our Building Emotional Resilience course alongside you, uh, she has one whole module on confidence and the how-to path to build confidence. Mm -hmm. And she talks about five of the research uh, proven ways that contribute to confidence. And one of those five is taking action. Uh, she <laughs> says that we actually, we tend to think, you know, we, we gain confidence that helps us then to take action, but it's, it's actually the other way around that most of the time it's by, you know, gaining the courage to just move forward and take action that we then gain the confidence. Right. And so, you know, what you're describing here with, with decision-making, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So yeah. let's, let's move into another uh, area that you talk about of of small shifts that that have an impact. Uh, social support is one mm -hmm. that you describe. What, what are some of the different forms that social support can take and, and how does that help us? Yeah, well, just uh, connecting with other people is a crucial part of our well-being. Like humans evolved to need each other. And 
I think sometimes like in our current society, we emphasize self-reliance so much. And it's helpful to realize, like, now our brain evolved to rely on other people. So if you feel like I can't do this all by myself, like it, it sort of comes down to a, a mindfulness approach of like, oh yeah, oh, I can't do this all by myself. Like the, the difference between mindfully accepting that or just being angry at yourself is sort of like how you're saying it. Like, I can't do this all myself. Like you're just frustrated and angry at yourself as opposed to acceptance is like, oh, I can't do this all by myself. Uh, and once you accept that you can't do this all by yourself, then it, it, you know, it frees you up to realize like, oh, well, I need other people. And sometimes that creates vulnerability, which makes us feel stress, but to realize like, well, that's just, yep, that's just what it's like to be human. Uh, and um, there are two sort of uh, primary things that we need to to pay attention to uh, of how this can go awry there's the um uh um there's being alone also called social isolation just being by yourself and then there's feelings of loneliness and they're they both contribute to things like depression in independent ways but they are separate sort of concepts but they can also interact being alone is a is a behavioral environmental thing. Like, uh, are you not talking to people? Are you sitting by yourself in a room? Like that's an objective measurable thing. Like, yep, you're alone. Uh, loneliness, however, is a feeling and you, we, you can, you know, people have probably experienced this themselves where like, there's sometimes you could be sitting alone by yourself at home and like, feel really connected to someone uh, or feel really connected to your family. And other times, you know, conversely, you could be at a party surrounded by people and yet feel totally lonely and disconnected. And we, we, we need both of these things uh, in social interaction and to feel connected, but just they are solved in different ways. Um, we can solve social isolation simply by being around people, even if you don't talk to them, like instead of trying to work by yourself in your house, like just go to Starbucks or go to the library. Like I wrote the upward spiral at the library, not because I had to go there to do research, but I was like, it's like so hard to stay motivated when I'm sitting here when you're around other people reading books. Okay. It just feels a little bit easier. Um, you know, talk, to people, you know, uh, do stuff with other people, even if they're not, you know, your best friends or like to, to address the social isolation. It's just about having more interactions with people, um, to, uh, um, and this, by the way, like you can solve, like if you go for a walk with your dog, random people are more likely to say hi or smile at you. And so you, oh, you feel like I have more social interaction. Whereas the other part, the loneliness, is it not about the number of interactions or connections. It's about the depth of that connection. And so you're not going to solve loneliness usually by just making new friends or about talking to more people. It's about strengthening connections and deepening those connections and being more vulnerable and open to the to the people that you're already connected to uh 
And that's where, you know, having a dog also, like it doesn't have to be a person. Dogs help us feel more connected. So that's like dogs can help you in multiple ways because oh, I feel connected to this dog. And also when I go take them for a walk, then people smile at me. And so it can help with both of those things. Uh, but um, uh, like one of the things that I like to connect it back to what we were talking earlier about gratitude is like writing a letter to someone and expressing your gratitude, even if you never send it to them, will help you feel more connected to them. It re it it reduces the loneliness portion. It doesn't affect your isolation <laughs> at all. And it's helpful to realize that like, okay, both of these things are needs that we have. We need to be around people and to hug people and handshake and talk to people and see their faces. And uh, like, that's important. <laughs> But also, you don't need to have super deep connections with everyone, as long as you just have a few deep connections of people that you know you can rely on, who uh, you can depend on, who you can trust. Well, then uh, it just reduces the the loneliness that can often be painful. It's interesting as you're as you're describing. It, it's helpful to start to separate those to. Be more clear on what actions to take. Mm -hmm. Are are there gender differences that are important or would be helpful to note when it comes to addressing either you know the social interaction side or the loneliness side? And, and maybe you'd say, yeah, there's gender differences, but it's a mute point. Or or is there something that would be helpful to understand? You know, male. Well, I mean, I think there are gender differences on average, uh, but what's key is to realize like it doesn't matter what the average is like it doesn't matter if you know women on average you know uh, are affected more by their relationship with their best friend you know than men or whatever like part of the issue is i mean i, I guess i think part of the issue particularly for men's mental health is that like like we think that there are bigger gender differences like oh well women are you know more social whatever like we encourage like women might on average, like their brains might have a slightly more higher tendency to be more social, but then we, how we raise girls and we encourage that. And so we exaggerate those differences, those maybe more innate differences through socialization. And women are encouraged to open up with their, you know, friends and encouraged to, to think about other people. Whereas we encourage boys to like, you know, ignore your feelings or like you can, you know, do it all by yourself. And that's not good for men's mental health. Uh, and so a lot of times like, uh, we need to help men understand that like, no, you need people and that's not a bad thing. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so I think part of the issue is that our, our society sort of exaggerated these gender differences when it's really more, similar I, I was just thinking about this uh, tv show where they were talking talking about two of the um guys is having a bromance and they were talking to psychologists and they're like you know bromance is like oh guys who feel open and and you know vulnerable and they can hug each other and uh they both you know recognize the value of that and they're like she was like there's no equivalent in in for women the female equivalent of romance is friendship. Uh, and it's like, the issue is that just the way that we socialize 
guys, a lot of like, oh, we we find it hard to open up and be close about things and be vulnerable, which is necessary to to overcome those feelings of loneliness, to really feel understood and trusted and close, because that releases oxytocin. And part of that is because if we're sort of taught that, like, oh, it's it's you know, you need to be self reliant, then relying on other people can sometimes make us feel weak as opposed to just accepting like oh that's part of being human and by relying on other people then they open up all of these wonderful emotions uh and uh that in the end will actually make me feel less stress and feel happier but the bridging that gap of of acknowledging this need and being able to tolerate the discomfort of taking the risk you know, because vulnerability requires risk. So like, I'm going to tell you this, this thing I'm, I'm feeling that's important. And I have to trust that you're not going to laugh at me. And like, sometimes we take that risk and we're like, oh, okay, I guess I can't talk with these things. I can just talk about sports or whatever. And we sort of learn the confines of what's allowed and not allowed. Uh, but there is no like deep connection without vulnerability, essentially realizing like, oh, yeah, I could get hurt, even if it's in a small way, but I need that. And I want that connection. I'm willing to take that risk. Very helpful clarification again, Alex. One of the reasons why I brought brought up the question in the first place is I had read a, a study uh, just the other day where it said that about 40% of the men that they surveyed had never spoken to anyone about their mental health. And and I'm sure there's varying studies that are you know represent that that number differently, but it, it helped me to realize that that I think part of the the challenge there is that we have this paradigm about what the differences are when the underlying mm-hmm. you know circuitry of our our biology is much more similar than we think. Yes. And so thank you thank you for helping emphasize that in a powerful way. So we there's a few other things that that you that you emphasize that we're not going to go into uh, regarding some of these small shifts things uh, of course like our physical well being sleep and exercise or habits we we did talk about habits a fair amount in our last conversation we won't address those here because uh, and actually the coming weeks we've got some sleep experts and exercise experts and habits experts that we're going to do some podcast episodes on and so we'll talk uh, further there but Alex, yeah I just yeah I'll just add like. Sometimes like some of these things we've talked about were like mental shifts and shifts in your interaction with the people. And sometimes the solution is some of those simple, dumb stuff that you can do on your own. Like, yeah, just get some sunlight, move, get your body moving. Don't have to punish yourself with exercise. Just use your body. Take a few slow breaths, like try and have a regular sleep schedule uh, and uh, you know, eat, <laughs> eat healthy food, stop eating junk food, like some of these things, you know, they won't necessarily, I mean, sometimes they make you feel better right away. But some of these things like they won't necessarily make you feel better right away, but they start making small changes in your brain that makes it a little bit easier to feel calmer tomorrow and makes it a little bit easier to acknowledge your gratitude and makes it a little bit easier to, you know, get more exercise once you've had good sleep. And then because you've had good exercise, then, you know, it helps you sleep better. And that's why it's like part of the upward spiral. And you don't need to see how you're going to get out of this, this mess you're in all at once. 
you just have so many options on the menu of small mental shifts you can make or small physical changes in your actions or small changes in your interactions or environment that each little one, it's not going to solve the whole problem, but it's going to make a little change in this one circuit. And it's going to make the, the next change tomorrow a little bit easier. And even though it's not a straightforward path, like the opportunity is always there to create uh, this upward spiral. Wonderful. Alex, we, we talked about it last time. Uh, but again, for those that, that this has really resonated with, they've, they've found a lot of value in, in your perspective and you know, where, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, my website, alexcorbphd.com or uh, follow me on, on uh, Facebook or Instagram at alexcorbphd. I've got a free private uh, Facebook group about positive neuroscience where I talk a lot more in depth because you know, you mentioned the ultimate Frisbee coaching it was really after like a decade or so of coaching ultimate Frisbee and like loving it and then doing a PhD in neuroscience where I started to realize like, wait, I can, I can do both of the things together. Like I can coach people who are, you know, stuck in overthinking or stress or self doubt who want to make positive changes in their um, life or in their career. And I find that really meaningful and to help them apply these elements of the upward spiral to their lives. Cause yeah, some people it's, you know, maybe you could describe what they're going through as depression or anxiety, but like, we don't always need to make those like bright line distinctions. Like, are you stuck? Are you like, then, Hey, here's how the upward spiral can help you. And, um, I've started coaching that that's, that's why I've shifted my focus on to help people, uh, apply that information. As you know, I'm I'm a member of your subscribed email list. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've got uh, several of your books on my bookshelf, and and have been an avid fan. And so, I highly recommend for everyone else to to connect with Alex. And Alex, thank you. You know, you you've just been an absolute wonderful collaborator, and we're grateful for the contributions that you've made. You're welcome, and I appreciate your you know insightful questions and your your openness and vulnerability. It's been wonderful having these conversations. Thanks for listening to the show today. As was alluded to in the interview, Alex is one of five amazing instructors in our Processing Difficult Emotions course. The course allows you to focus in on an area of deep personal importance to you and to develop the skills of processing difficult emotions in the context of progressing that deeply important part of your life. Each of our courses includes an integrated peer community that provides a warm and personalized environment for encouragement, insight, collaboration, and inspiration. Learning how to process difficult emotions can feel overwhelming, which is why we've studied with BJ Fogg, a world's leading behavioral scientist out of Stanford, to use his proven behavior change methods throughout the course. The result is desired life changes in your emotional well-being are able to be broken down into tiny shifts that compound into the changes you hope for. If you'd like to learn more or join the waitlist for our next cohort of the course, visit beholdogood.com.